When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Wednesday Bible Study. We are excited that you are here and excited to unpack God's Word again today. All right, so if you are new, let me kind of tell you who we are. Uh, we are a men's Wednesday Bible Study. Been here almost a decade now. Uh, we've, we changed locations a, a year ago, but uh, this is a, a men's Bible study that, that when we started at, at the local church, uh, we started a men's discipleship strategy. We worked on it for several years. Then that strategy launched uh, to the entire country uh, on March 1, 2020. Uh, so we started the first year of a brand new plan to reach and disciple men in the middle of a worldwide pandemic. So that that was that was year one, and uh, we've been working uh, since that. Uh, we have now grown. Uh, the last check that we just got, we looked at it yesterday. Uh, the official number, I was trying to get down to it because some of the churches are going through multiple curriculum, and they, so they might be even be in their third curriculum. But it looks like a number that we're comfortable with, the 682 unique churches, and then, of course, the, 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 the curriculums have been bought multiple times by some of them. And they're all over the country, and, and so this weekend— uh, in Oxford, Alabama, my hometown, I just did the walkthrough yesterday at the Oxford Performing Arts Center. Uh, we will be bringing uh, men's groups from all over the country, 12 different states represented, all converging uh, on this little town that is right in between Atlanta, Georgia, and Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, there is not a hotel room to be had. There is not a ticket to be had. Uh, I don't know how the Bible speaks to scalping. But uh, but but uh, but the um, but anyway, so uh, so we are looking forward to that, and and so part of that will be I'm wearing one of our shirts. This will be a new shirt uh, we'll have out because the theme of the conference will be transformed. We'll ask every man this question, and we all have to ask ourselves this question: Have we been transformed by Christ? Has He transformed us? If He hasn't, it is not because of His inability to do so. So we'll assess ourselves and, and see, do we look like we are being transformed uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit uh, under the authority of Jesus Christ? And we'll, that'll be our theme for the entire weekend. Uh, we'll also have a new 31-day devotional. Uh, they are in. I'm going to bring it to, to you guys next week that are in here. Don't worry about that. But uh, they're all headed over to the conference this weekend, and it's going to be a 31-day devotional that is called Transformed. Uh, there's, there's, the, there's the theme, Embracing the Death of Self and the Power of God. Not a real popular title for today's society, uh, but Jesus has always been counterculture. So, so anyway, that's 31 days of some of the 31 of the mo- some of the most challenging, difficult verses in the Bible. And every day is a new one, and it's the first thing that I've ever written the commentary myself, uh, praying through it. Uh, I know some of you are saying, you've never done anything that Sherry didn't help you with, my wife. Yeah, she helped me with this too. But anyway, so so uh, yeah, we we uh, uh, but we got that put together. It, it's the first thing because uh, I've been part of books and I love being part of it. I've been a participant. Uh, that's not really my gift, 
writing. Uh, that is my wife's gift and Andy Blank's gift and, and some of the other guys on our team. It, it's not mine, uh, but uh, I, I worked on it, and then they all took the grammar and fixed it. So so anyway, 31-day devotional transformed coming out uh, next week. But if you're coming to the conference this weekend, we will have it there. So, uh, so looking forward to that, and this is our new shirt transformed as well so all those things will be available uh the shirts are already at themanchurch.com if you want to check that out and if you haven't been to themanchurch.com lately that's where our host strategy is set up you can see where uh, men are doing services all over the country you can see the curriculums that are available the resources that are available i want you to look at our new video that is on our homepage now that tells you kind of who we are and what we do because you will see men in this room they will become stars there in the video so you can actually see that. I'm telling you, Tom Haney, he, the shots we have of Tom Haney, I mean, he is made for the screen. So anyway, so so look for that if you would like to know who we are. Also, if you're looking for man churches around you, like where can I find churches that are doing the strategy? It's pretty simple. You just look for where they're having men's services. These are not events. They're just services at the church. And tomorrow night, uh, Hopetown Church in Huntsville, Alabama, if you're watching listening in that area, They'll kick it off tomorrow night. Blake Prime from our team will be teaching, uh, and then they'll have the curriculum set up ready to go, uh, and they'll plug you in into small groups. We have a three curriculum. Also this weekend we'll announce our fourth curriculum that's coming out. So they'll be doing one of those. And then on uh, this weekend is the conference in Oxford, Alabama. That is sold out. Then coming up next, uh, I mean on Sunday the 26th, Blake Prime again, we put him back on the road. He'll be at Crossroads in Warrior, Alabama. They're doing the strategy. And then looking ahead to being with the guys in um, Pottsville, Arkansas, right? That's near Russellville. Uh, Andy Blanks and I will be going there to speak to those men. And uh, you can be part of that at First Baptist Church in Pottsville. And then that same night, Brian Gunn will be in Op, Alabama. That's a church that's been doing the curriculum for a couple of years now. He'll be at Westview Baptist Church, and you can see him there. So if you want to find all that, just go to themanchurch.com. Let's pray, and let's jump right in to the letter to the church in Philadelphia. Lord, thank you for today, and help us to discern properly through the power of the Holy Spirit. May every heart here now, just let's just move all the distractions of our lives out. We certainly pray ahead of the conference this weekend. Uh, I'm from a little town in, in Alabama. Uh, and, I, and, and when you think of what's going on this weekend, we're reminded throughout Scripture, you always did mighty things with people and in places that the world deemed to be insignificant. Uh, we know you're going to do something huge, and we are anticipating a movement of the power of God this weekend uh, as, we, as we all will be confronted with you. Uh, and may you hear our shouts of praise and worship to the one and only that is worthy of our praise. And that's you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so uh, the church at Philadelphia. Now, this is going to be great because it's been, to this point, we, we've got, I mean, Ephesus was close. They, you know, they, they kind of had their act together, but then Jesus said, I, I got this against you. Then we got some that are in really bad shape. we got dead churches. We've got false doctrine. we got all kinds of stuff. Well, if we need to learn from what, churches were doing wrong, no matter how you see these churches, here's an opportunity for us today to learn from a church that's doing it right. And I know when we say the church in Philadelphia, I won't name any names. Some of you are looking for me to make rocky references and 
and things like that. We're, we're not talking about the city. Of, if you look at the city of brotherly love in our country, it doesn't look like this church. Uh, so, so it's it's a different Philadelphia. Our founding fathers probably meant for it to look like that. But it doesn't look very brotherly loving in Philadelphia in America right now. But that's this is not America. Uh, this is a church in Philadelphia, uh, and we'll be in Re- Revelation chapter three. We'll go through verses seven through thirteen. So if you're looking at this, remember we always look at the three views, and we're not adopting any of these three. You could say it's a combination of all of them. Uh, let's just pull truth out of here that really applies no matter how you see it. If it's the practical view, you say here's one church. It literally is in Philadelphia. All that's true. And all this is is Jesus speaking to that church at that time in that place. If that's your view, you would see this as the feeble church, meaning it's small. It seems insignificant. Uh, None of us would see it as a mega church, a big player, nothing like that. Uh, But you also would see it as, as small by the world standard, insignificant, but to Jesus, the faithful church. And i got to tell you, that's really all we should be concerned about. Are we a faithful church? Uh, then if you look, at it's the state of any church at any time, anywhere, including today. Then you would say this would represent a church that's in revival. A lot of revival talk right now. What it is, what it isn't. Uh, is, is, is it emotionalism? Is, it, is, is there truly God moving here? Revival this, revival that, here revival, there revival. Is it? Yes, no. We haven't looked real good to the world, by the way. You know what would really serve a lot of us really well? Get off social media. I mean, if you want to get on social media and say we're having an event and it's going to be God-honoring and it's going to be biblically sound, but Paul clearly instructed us not to engage in foolish arguments in front of lost people. And I don't know if some people, y'all just haven't read those verses, you've never heard this before. I don't know how much more confusing some of you can be to the loss right now on this argument over whether revival is taking place or not at Asbury or Sanford or these other churches or where it is. You can have these conversations in private as we were instructed to do by the Apostle Paul. Having these publicly looks ridiculous, and it, it does so much damage. You talk about confusing people. So we don't even know what revival is. And and so so we can have these discussions on our own, and uh, but but we should not be having them publicly. But it is going on. So sorry for those of you out there that are trying to learn, or you're a seeker, or you're an infant to the faith, or you're lost. This is not our best look right now. But but so let's look at Philadelphia because it, this will be. So they there is revival going on here, and. We can argue about what is or isn't revival, but I'll tell you one thing that I'll come down on today with zero hesitation. I know what stops revival, sin. Uh, and, and, and we've talked about that a lot here. So the state of any church, <coughs> this church in Philadelphia would be a church in revival. Now, if you're looking at it from a prophetic view, it's prophecy, it's the church ages. Well, it would be the, the age of the church that went through some of the biggest revivals the church has ever seen. Around the world now, for us here in America, uh, you know, we we think about Moody, uh, Finney, uh, you know, Livingston, Taylor, Judson. Uh, you know, the 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 church is 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 back on mission. Uh, it's out to reach a lost world. We're seeing people come to Christ all over the world. That would represent a time of the church's revivals, and we've had those throughout time. That's what this would represent. So, whatever view you take, that that's that's between you and God. Uh, but what we're going to pull out of this today really doesn't matter which view you take because 
the truth of it still applies. So first of all, let's talk about the actual church. Not much is known about this church. It is a real church um, uh, from the passage, but uh, like most of the seven, and man, I'm telling you something, when the Apostle Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, and 10, <laughs> I shouldn't even be an apostle. Because, you know, there was always the argument, because, you know, to be called an apostle, you had to be with Jesus, okay? You had to have an encounter with Jesus. That's what makes you an apostle. Uh, you know, and Paul always had to defend himself. You know, I, I wasn't one of the original 12, but I did encounter Jesus personally on the road. He, he converted me. So I am an apostle. But in this passage, he says, I shouldn't even be an apostle. He said, because I persecuted the church, because of what I did. He said, this was a burden on him. And many believe, and I think it's plausible, that the adversary used that against him a lot. You know, some people even, you know, I saw one movie, The Apostle Paul, and it's just a theory that this tied into that thorn that he was always praying on. He was constantly thinking of the people he killed, that he jailed, and Satan loved to. I know that Satan does that to me or demonic forces or whatever they are, when I'm getting ready, it'll happen this weekend, I'll hear, you know, the accuser running down all the horrible things I ever did. Who are you to get up and talk? Who should that, you know, he that, he loves that. But but then Jesus stands up and says he's with me. Okay, there ain't nothing good about him, but he he belongs to me. There's something there's something perfect about me. I make him fully righteous so you can be quiet. So so anyway, and 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 Paul said that that he'd been given so much grace he understood how sinful he was. I've been given so much grace that the grace that I have been given will never be wasted. So I work harder than the rest of them because I know how much of a sinner I am. Think about that. That's the Apostle Paul. Well, think about I'm rolling these churches out to you, and you know what just about all the commentaries say about every one of them? Probably planted by Paul. This, was, this is more Paul's work. Uh, so you know what? He was getting after it, and the grace was not wasted on Paul. He made his life count. And so here's another church that most everybody believes when Paul was in Ephesus, when he planted all these in this area. This is another one that he planted in this little place uh, in Philadelphia. So uh, so they believe that, and they believe that, that, that it was planted a few years um, um, uh, after— um, it was a few years after John wrote the Revelation— and and so the, 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 there was some the, there were some early church leaders there, and one of them called Ignatius. Um, you know, Ignatius was coming through. The, this is the only really significant thing you see about Philadelphia from church history history, because he was going on to be martyred in Rome. He actually passed through Philadelphia on his way to be martyred in Rome. Members of the church, think about this. Remember back at the Church of Smyrna. Remember Polycarp. Members of Philadelphia were martyred with Polycarp. So that was some significant. There's some members there that, that, that are in church history. Uh, and, uh, and, and the church lasted for centuries. Uh, the followers of Christ in Philadelphia, they stood firm even after the region was overrun by Muslims. That was their big thing. When the Muslims, you know, remember, were going out and it was convert or die, uh, Philadelphia, those, those members had to stand firm for Jesus as the Muslims were coming down on them, and they did. Uh, they were finally overtaken in the mid-14th century, but they really stirred, stood firm in the face of Islam coming to kill them, which was uh, uh, significant. So what about the city? Where, what, what about Philadelphia? About 30 miles from Sardis. It is going to be the youngest of the seven cities that, that uh, Jesus is speaking to. It was founded about 189 B.C., 
It was not a military post or anything like that, like some of the others. Um, the the founders um, uh, intended it to be kind of a center of the Greek culture. That's what they wanted um, in, in language. Uh, they they had kind of a missionary outpost, but it wasn't for spreading the gospel. It was for spreading Hellenism, you know, which is the Greek way of life. They want to convert everybody to the Greek way of life, and they were very successful uh, because by AD nineteen. The Lydian language had been completely replaced by Greek, so they were pretty good at it. They they did they pretty much accomplished uh, the conversion of the Greek culture. Uh, they were um, they were in a volcanic region. This this ended up being not good. They had good soil for vineyards and things like that, but you see the drawbacks of being in in on all these volcanic areas. In AD seventeen, the earth, there was an earthquake. The one that got Sardis got them too. Uh, but then, uh, and, and the damage was um, was much greater in Philadelphia than even Sardis, uh, and they because they were closer to the epicenter where they were located, so they they got more of the earthquake. Uh, so many of the aftershocks during the following years led them to kind of be PTSD. Said a lot of the people there had some psychological scars from how horrible that was. Um, and Tiberius, he was known for this, came in and built this one back too. You know what happens then? You get a monument to you when you do that. So they had that in Philadelphia. Uh, they even changed their name for a f- uh, over over time. A couple of times, their names were the name was changed from Philadelphia to names that reflected their devotion uh, to the uh, the Roman rule. Uh, but um, but that was that's kind of the the history of the of of the city and the church. And as you see, it's kind of small. You don't hear a whole lot about it. But that doesn't really matter because what you're about to hear. That, that raises them above the other six is the one thing that is going to be significant is they have been found faithful. And, and I guess that's the question we have to ask ourselves right out of the gate. Do you want to be significant to the world or do you want to be significant to Jesus? Do you want to be found faithful or do you want to be found important? And, and, and if any of us say that we don't struggle with that, then you're going to have to repent of lying. Because that is a struggle. You know, are we the kind of people that even, especially in the Western church, now around the world you won't find this trouble much because being everybody, you know, if if, if they know that you've devoted yourself to Christ, they're going to try to kill you. Uh, So they they have a much different devotion. Here you can kind of become a Christian celebrity. You know, and and so what, what, uh, what, what we have to ask ourselves what if God said to you and me, I just want you to be faithful. I'm going to work through you, but nobody's ever going to know but me. Is that enough? So will everybody think that I'm really devoted to you? No, they'll never know, but I'll know you are. Is that enough? You mean I won't have this huge platform, this huge ministry? No, you won't. But the ministry will be impactful because I'm going to be what's great, not you. You be faithful to me, and I'll do the work. But nobody's going to clap for you, but I will stand up on the day of judgment and say you're one of mine. You're faithful. Well, that's that's the position they found themselves in. So Jesus is going to introduce himself again uh, to the church at Philadelphia. And I've really, I don't know about y'all, I've learned so much. I'd never noticed that in the past reading the Revelation 
that every letter Jesus uses another way to describe himself <clears throat> because all these apply to him. Well, he's going to introduce himself again with a description that's going to be reflecting his character. But this one's interesting. The first five letters all come from chapter 1 of the Revelation, verses 12 through 17, but not this one. This one is going to be unique. He has a distinct now Old Testament description of himself for the church at Philadelphia. He refers to himself, look what he calls himself in verse 7, and to the angel of the church, that's the leaders of the church, in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One. The words of the Holy One refers to God alone because God alone is the only one who is truly holy. Okay, now can he make us holy? Well, but but what's making us holy? Him. Okay, he's the only one that is absolute holiness. And the Old Testament repeatedly describes God as the Holy One. We don't have time for me to read all of them, but if, you, if you're making notes, 2 Kings 19.22, Job 6.10, uh, the Psalms, uh, I'll just give you two of them, 71, 22, 78, 41, and, of course, the prophet Isaiah, uh, 43, 15, 54, 5, and then we, we jump up early in Isaiah when he has this vision of God in Isaiah 6, and what does he say? Holy, holy, holy. There, there never is there anyone ever in Scripture referred to with three holies? It, it, it's only God. And here is Jesus saying, I am holy, the Lord of hosts. To say God is holy is to say, this is so good, to say God is holy is to say he is utterly separate from sin. His character is absolutely unblemished and flawless. Perfection. Now, really, I want you to really think about that. Don't just don't let us let that go by. We are so distant from the perfection of God, and the fact that He would close that gap. I mean, the 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 minute a speck of sin came into that garden, it's over. I I can't be with sin now. There's a separation. And he starts working out this plan of redemption. And Jesus is telling the church at Philadelphia, I'm the Holy One. Don't let anyone ever tell you that Jesus never said he was God. I mean, that has got to be one of the most ludicrous. I mean, it, it, that's all he did in the Gospel of John is to tell everybody that he was God. Uh, here he is again in the Revelation. He's constantly telling you that he is God, that he and the Father are one. And he's calling himself the Holy One. Well, the Old Testament says God is holy. And he says, I'm holy, which means what? I'm God. So, so this, this, is, this is undeniable. He's clearly, clearly, clearly calling himself deity. And anybody who tries to teach you false doctrine that takes away the deity of Christ, that's apostasy. They're a heretic. That's not just a, well, it's a little miss there. They're, you know, they're still great people. No, of course, of course Satan would try to deceive you with something that you didn't think was that bad. Of course he would, because the rest of it wouldn't really work. You see a monster, you're like, if you've got Jesus, you're like, 
But what if you see something that's just subtly wrong? Do you believe that Jesus was on the cross? Oh, absolutely. Do you believe he's God? Well, I don't know if they ever said that. Of course he did. He said it here too. And because he is holy, keep in mind, this: when, when the Holy One in the New Testament is a messianic title. Okay, So the fact that he's pulled that into the, the New Testament in the Revelation, he's saying the Lord Jesus is deity, I am holy, and here it comes. And man, we've talked about this a lot. And because Jesus is holy, his bride, the church, must also be holy. Or she's unfaithful. And he says Philadelphia is faithful. You'll see that. It's, it's real serious. Then what's the next thing he says about himself? The true one. Look at the next thing he says. The words of the Holy One, the true one. This is genuine. This is authentic. This is what he said about himself in the Gospel of John 14, 6. I am the way and I am the truth. Meaning anything, the world is full of falsehood. The world is full of perversion. The world is full of error. He is not. Got it? That's what he means by saying I'm true. I, I don't waver. I don't have half-truths. I don't have sort of truth. Well, that, that's, that's, that's kind of true. It, it's true, but that part's perverted. Well, there's a little bit of error in there. No, he says, what I say is without error. It is without falsehood. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And you know what he would say? Not only am I true, because I am true, what I just said is true. So there's no flaw there. So he, he's making sure we know that. This one gets a little more complicated, but we're going to get it. And he says, and, and the next thing that he says is what? The next description, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. That's going to be key in a little bit because he's going to make this promise to Philadelphia. Okay? So he who has the key of David, what is this? Remember, the line of David always represents the messianic office. Romans 5.5. 5. Romans 22.16. Okay? He's saying... David saying, I'm Messiah. That, that's the messianic, that, 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 that's, the, that's the line, that's the office. And the key that he's holding means that he has the authority. Matthew 16, 19, we're told what? He's got the, he's got the key uh, to, to, to Hades. He's got the key to life and death. We're going to see that coming up later. So, but, but we're going to get even more specific here in the Old Testament. The key of David. Isaiah speaks of this in 22.22. If you remember this, this was uh, Elohim, the steward of, uh, of the prime minister, or the prime minister to Israel's king. It says that he controlled access to the monarch and its treasures. It says that. So Jesus says, I alone have sovereign authority to determine who enters into my messianic kingdom, which we're going to see that's we're going to see that coming. We're going to see that the Revelation also has already told us he has the keys to death and hell. We'll see that again. And he has the keys to salvation and blessing. 
So Isaiah is telling this that Elikim has the key to the monarch, and so the keys to David means I have the keys to the messianic line. I am Messiah, which also gives me the keys to death and hell, gives me the keys to salvation and blessing. I have the keys to everything God is. And I will bestow that upon what? All the redeemed. And so that's how, he's, uh, that's how he is. And nobody can, can shut it. That's what he says. He who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. What does that mean? Omnipotence. What he does, no one has more authority than he does to overthrow him or to overrule him. What I say goes. If I open a door, it'll stay open. If I shut it, it'll stay shut. I'm the there's no authority above me. And so you'll see that come into play here in a minute. So um I love what Isaiah 43, 13 says about God. I love this. And this is what Jesus is saying. Again, showing his deity. I act, and who can reverse it? God says, once I act, who's going to stop me? What I've done, who undoes? No one. And that's that needs to be reassuring as well, because what he says to all of us, if I've redeemed you, I've redeemed you. It's done. And, and I have the authority to redeem you. So if I've redeemed you, can't nobody overthrow me. So keep that in mind. No one can shut the doors to the kingdom or its blessings if he holds them open. And no one, and this is what we need to be on the other end of that spectrum, no one can force doors open that he holds shut. He has sovereign control over his church. That's what he wants Philadelphia to know. I have sovereign control. So, Jesus Christ, holy, true, sovereign, omnipotent, Lord of the church. And now I want you to think about this. This is going to be tough right now, okay? Because this is now we're going to take this and put it on ourselves. Because we are the church. If you're in this room and you're redeemed, you are part of the church, okay? We're not specifically talking about your church congregation, but we're talking about all of us as a church. We, we, there's different congregations represented, but we're all one church, okay? Jesus is about to say to this church, and if this doesn't fire you up, I don't know what I can do, okay? If this is not a goal, Jesus just said, I'm looking at you. Now put yourself there where Philadelphia is, the church. Put yourself there. The one who is looking at you is holy. The one that's looking at you is true. The one who's looking at you is sovereign. The one who's looking at you is omnipotent. The one that is looking at you is the Lord of the church. And I find nothing to condemn you over. Let that sit. I don't see anything I'm upset about. Man. He just goes right into con he just he goes right into commending them. They're faithful. 
And you realize who just declared them faithful? So guess what? If he declared it, they are. See, we may declare ourselves faithful and Jesus go, I don't agree with you. Or does Jesus declare you faithful and me faithful? So, there's nothing in their works or their deeds that cause him concern. So he just moves on to commend them. Think about that. He just moves on. Can you imagine standing before Jesus? And you're like, oh, man, I hope this goes well. How wonderful would it, would it, would it, how would it sound in your ear and in my ear? Well done. Good and faithful servant. I got nothing to condemn you over. Let's get to what I want to say. Good job on. I want to talk about the things you're doing well. I'm telling you. You know, it, it goes back to this. This is this is a fallen, imperfect example, but it works. And I'm not saying we do this if it doesn't warrant it. Don't hear me say that. Okay? In men's ministry, one thing I learned early on from Steve Farrar, God rest his soul. He's getting a well done, by the way. Okay? And I heard others say it, but I remember, in, I think it was in the book King Me that he wrote, every single male, and I would, I would go as far as, this was concentrating on males, and maybe it is more severe there, but I would go as far as to say every, every child of a, of a, that is, has a daddy, which all do, somewhere. At the heart of it all, especially the wound for males, they want so desperately to hear their dad say, I'm proud of you. I can't tell you the number of men I've talked to says my dad never told me he was proud of me, and I yearned for it. I just wanted to hear that he was proud of me. Now, look. If you don't warrant that, that's different. But if you've lived your life in a way that you think that you have done what should get it, I'm a proud of you from your dad, the worst thing a dad can do is say, well, they know I'm proud of them. No, you tell them you're proud of them. You think Philadelphia, you think this was big when this letter was read to this church? Now, Jesus could have said, I don't have to send them a letter. They know. But he sent the letter. You think that was a big day? Can you imagine being in a church? John sends out a letter. Somebody says, this is from John, from Patmos. He's talked to the Lord, and he has written a letter to us. Can you imagine that day? And whoever reads them, because they, isn't that right? They read them, they read them out loud to the congregation. Some of them they probably should have proofread before they did. But anyway, so they read it out loud. Can you imagine you're sitting in that pew or sitting in a folding chair? What are you sitting in? Can you imagine being in that congregation and you hear this? So if Jesus takes the time to tell people he's proud of them, I think we can. I think that's a pretty good example to follow. Don't assume they know it. Just say, I want you to know I'm proud of you. I got, I got to say that to one of my sons this weekend. I just want you to know I'm proud of you. The way you've lived your life, I'm proud of it. You, you, you've done things the way that the Lord and Savior that you serve has called you to, and i got to tell you, there's nothing you could do to make me more prouder than that. You're doing it the way he said to do it. And then, of course, you pray 
by the grace of God, may they finish well. And then the ones that are off track right now, may they come home. And the ones that are somewhere in between, may they work it out. So, so here we go. So he starts out, and listen what he says to them right out of the gate. He says, I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So he starts out, the little power is not a negative. He doesn't mean this negative because we know there's no, he's not condemning them at all. He's just saying that you're a small church, but let me tell you what you've done. You've magnified me, which is your true strength. The world may think you're small. The world may think you're insignificant, but i got to tell you something. You're mighty because you're faithful to me. In uh, Luke 12, 32, there's a quote that is really awesome where the Word of God says, Fear not the little flock. Because a lot of times a little flock can have a powerful impact. And this little tiny church was having major impact on their city. When some of the bigger, larger churches were not. I will tell you, I experienced this one time. I know we got a lot to cover. I won't spend time on it. I was booked to speak somewhere, and I've been to every size church there is. And I had no idea where I was going. But I just sensed that this was something I wanted to be part of. And I knew I was going to speak at this event they had every year, and it was a huge event. I'm talking about they were having Robertsons there from Duck Dynasty, giving away tons of prizes, packing it out, people from all over the surrounding communities. So in my mind, as I'm getting on the airplane to go, I think I'm going to a megachurch. I think this the whole time. I'm like, man, this is a huge church. Well, as soon as we land, I realize pretty quick, is there even law and order here? I, I mean, we were so far out in the wilderness that even the Presbyterians were handling snakes. I was like, I, I didn't, I was like, where are we? And, and, the, and the pilot's like, I, I don't know. So we're somewhere, be- somewhere between Louisiana and Mississippi. I said, like, where are we? I look and there's like this old beat up pickup truck waiting on me at a FBO that really was like a pasture that had a runway in it. And I go over and the guy said, Hey man, we're so excited to have you. And I'm like, where's the thing? And he says, well, it's at our church. And I said, okay. So we're riding, you know, we're in the middle of nowhere. I said, so how, how many members do you have in your church? He said, ah, he said, last Sunday we had about 75. I said, 75? By the way, my wife and I teach a Sunday school that last Sunday had 86. Okay? All right? I said, 75? He said, well, now on Easter we have 100. And I said, I said, oh, okay. I said, are y'all one of the churches going to the event? He said, no, we, we, we host the event. Where? He goes, well... You know, we don't really have a, a big enough congregation to warrant a bigger worship center, but we built a facility just for this event. He said, it ain't nothing fancy. He said, but it's big. I mean, we got a lot of space. I said, okay. 
So I pull up. There's a guy in a in a in a, an orange vest, and there's cars everywhere, and he's parking people, and he says to me, "That's our pastor." This guy, you know, and I, I'm like, the guy parking cars. He said, "Yeah." I said, "Why is the pastor parking cars?" He goes, "Cause we need him to." <laughs> and and I look, and I, honestly, it's a church with 75 people. They had one person that got paid, one, the pastor, and he was bivocational. Okay, they gave him a little bit. Nobody else get, got paid on the staff. And to say staff is quite as outrage. I look up. They have this thing they've built, and it's packed. They had 1,200 probably men that had come from farm towns all over. And the pastor with the orange vest still on hands the the parking flashlights off to a guy and says, hey. I said, who are y'all? How do you do this? He said, we just go out in the communities and tell people, try to see if we can't raise money. Got people donated four-wheelers, and we got this, and we shipped this in. We just called up Duck Dynasty and asked how much one of them were last year, and then we found the money to pay him. And I said, why? He said, so people will come to Christ. We just go out to all these farming communities, and sometimes this, some of these guys live so far out in the woods, this is the only thing they'll get them to come in to hear the gospel. And he said, we've had hundreds and hundreds of men come to Christ. And I said, well, then where do they go? You only got 75 people. He goes, oh, well, they end up speckling these little small churches everywhere. He goes, he said, we've seen God move in a mighty way. I have been to mega churches that have 3,000 members, and their biggest event they've had for men will have 100 people. This little church had 1,200 people because they just get after it. They don't have the resources. They don't have they don't have any of that. They just go tell people to come hear about Jesus. Now they use four wheelers and giveaways and you know speakers that they think these men might know. They do all that. Their strategy. But they're not sitting there going, How come nobody knows about this? They promote it themselves within all the communities. And when I was doing this study, I thought they it reminded me of them because they were faithful. I mean, they still had the little thing where you know, the little thing where you put the number of how they had in Sunday school up there, you know, the offering, you know, four hundred dollars. This, this, you know, I mean, they still had that. But buddy, they were on fire for Jesus, and they were making an impact on all the communities around them. And so uh, I was so impressed by that. So anyway, so they were having impact. Most of them in this church were poor, but despite their small size, the 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 spirit flowed from this Philadelphia church and people being redeemed and lives being transformed as the gospel of Jesus Christ was being proclaimed. What's the next thing he said? You kept my word. They were obedient. They kept his word. They did not deviate. What do we hear from some other churches? You've deviated from sound doctrine. Guess who didn't deviate? Philadelphia. He says this. He says right there, you're small. I got that. But you, you're doing a lot. But you do have power. Yet you have kept my word, and you have not denied my name. You don't deviate. They did not compromise Jesus. How many people right now do we hear, and you're hearing this getting out there, well, we just got to stop telling people this is what the Bible said. That's not good enough. We, we got to make this more palatable. You can't keep doing all this fundamentalism. 
and this is what the Word of God said, and this is who God is, you, you're going to have to you got you got to be a little more seeker friendly. The Church of Philadelphia didn't think that. He says you don't deny anything about me. You never have, and it works. What's the next thing he said? You don't deny my name, no matter how much pressure you faced or what it will cost you. Even when the Muslims came down on you later, they would not deny Jesus. No matter how much pressure people put on y'all to turn against me, you wouldn't do it. You were loyal. And then look at uh, look at verse 10. Behold, I will make those, or 9 and 10, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, we've already talked about them, so we know who that is, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, L-I-E. Behold, I will make them come, and I will make them bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Why? Look at 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, and I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world, underline that, to try, to try those who dwell on the earth. Now think about this. Don't miss this part. You have had patient endurance. You were steadfast. He's giving them an example out of Hebrews 12, 2 through 4. He's talking about them being steadfast for Christ. If you have your Bible real quick, just thumb over to 2 Thessalonians, because I want to I want to hit that real quick. 2 Thessalonians, and we're going to look um, uh, at uh, verse chapter 3, verse 5. Look at chapter 3, verse 5. This is Paul writing to a church. Remember, Thessalonica was doing pretty good, and he told them to keep on going, keep doing what you're doing. You know, you haven't arrived, but they're getting a good uh, letter from Paul, and he says in 5, do, not, you, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And that was what? To be steadfast, to endure. This is Jesus reminding them uh, what, what had already been say, said. He said endurance is essential to a saving faith, we saw that uh, right down Matthew 10, 22, when he says to them, to, to us, he said, you will be hated, but I, I, when you are hated, I am calling you to endure. He, he said, I'm go- that I, I, have, I have told you to endure, and here's the thing, and you did. He says, I told you that the trials were coming. You heard it, and you said, okay. I told you to be patient, so when you had to be patient, you remember I said to be patient, so you were. There was a strange thing going in Philadelphia. They heard what Jesus taught, and they did it. So when the fiery trial came, they didn't say, what about this fiery trial? You know what they said? Jesus told us about this. Hey, man, we're, we're having to be patient right now. Jesus said we would have to be. Hey, we're having to endure. Yeah, Jesus said we would. They don't act like they don't know what's going on because Jesus told them to expect all these things. He said, I told you to expect it, and when it happened, guess what? You expected it. What a concept. It makes me think of John 14, 15, when he says what? Those who love me, obey me. If you love me, you obey my commands. The ones who don't obey me, I'll tell you why they don't obey me. They don't love me. So he talks about their patience, uh, patient endurance in 10, and he says, because these things were promised to you by Jesus. You know, and this goes back to what he said before. This goes back to, in this particular case, he, he says something, then we go back to 9, 
when he talks about he's not going to let these Jews who are trying to do them harm, he's not going to have uh, them come against him. And he says that he has he, he has opened a door which no one's going to be able to shut. I know you have little power, but you've done all these things. He's saying, I have put an open door to your church, which no one can, can, can shut. Your salvation is secure. The entrance to both the blessings of salvation and also the entrance into Christ and his future messianic kingdom, they now have the freedom to serve and proclaim the gospel. He says, what's flowing out of this church? I got the door open and ain't nobody going to shut it. Y'all go out and you preach and you make disciples. I'm going to protect you. Nobody's going to stop you. And I, I've also opened the door to my messianic kingdom where all this is going to be in perfection. You're going to have to suffer till we get there. But I promise this, I'm giving you power now to go reach lost people. I'm giving you power now to advance my kingdom. And I'm going to set you up when I have my final kingdom. You're going to be there, and that's guaranteed to you. And ain't nobody going to take you from me. Not even these Jews that have infiltrated you, that, are, that hate you, and they're trying to come, and they deny that I'm Messiah. They're trying to destroy you. That ain't going to happen. He's protecting them. And he says that he will. There was hostility from the unbelieving Jews that uh, they rejected him. So they, 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 that's why you remember back in one of the other letters, he referred to them as a synagogue of Satan. They may think they're at the synagogue, but it's not the synagogue of my father, I'll tell you that. It's not the synagogue of me, it's the synagogue of Satan because they rejected me. Because if you reject Jesus, then you embrace Satan. And there's not some in-between in there somewhere. And he said their claim to be true Jews, because notice he says they say they're Jews, but they're not. And you're like, what is he talking about? I'll tell you what he's talking about. They're not finished Jews. They're not complete. They rejected him. I know that may upset some of you out there that take that up with Jesus. Jesus is saying, if you do not accept me as Messiah, you are not a true Jew. You're not complete. So your claim to that of being chosen, that claim is not complete because you've rejected what my father sent the Jewish people for them to be redeemed. And now we've got the wild branch grafted in. Now the Jew and the Gentile can equally come to me, but you were supposed to take me to the world. You didn't do it, so I've turned around. Now the Gentiles are taking me to the world. And, and that's what he's talking about. And here's Philadelphia doing it. So uh, that that's exactly what he was talking about. He said, you spiritually, you are not Jewish because you have rejected me. Jesus promises that the Jews will be defeated as their enemies uh, will see how much he loves them. You love that? He says, when I, you know, you saw this all the time, even back in, uh, I just heard uh, Pastor Mac Brunson talking about this, when, he, when you see that it, when, when, when God goes against the Egyptians, I thought this was an interesting point that he made this last Sunday. He said, then even the Egyptians begin to speak to themselves in third person. He's mad at the Egyptians, meaning I'm not one of them. They don't say he's mad at us. He loves them, and he's angry with the Egyptians. They're now calling themselves in third person because they don't want to be associated with being an Egyptian when God's out to get the Egyptians. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, when they try to come after you and they see me protect you, they're going to see, they're going to see how much I love you. I'm going to make sure they know how much I love you. This is also prophetic, of course, because Isaiah writes about this in chapter 14. I'm sorry, in chapter 45, verse 14. Isaiah also 49, 23. And also in chapter 60, 14, 
you can go look at those, but I'll tell you what it bas- what it says. Isaiah depicts unbelieving Gentiles. He, he predicts them, and then what they're doing is they're now bowing down to the believing remnant um, of Israel. And so you see this. This is kind of in reverse. And when he talks about this bowing down. But what Isaiah is seeing is, is, is the future. What he's saying is the unbelievers will bow down to those who believed in Jesus. And he says, if they choose to reject me, they're going to be bowing down to you. Now, they, 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 they can receive me. He said, but if they, if, they, if they continue to reject me, they're going to be bowing down to you. And, and this church and, and, and their faithfulness will eventually bring salvation to some of the very Jews who now persecute them. He said, they're against you right now, but your faithfulness is even going to affect some of them. And then the final promise that he talks about is because they had passed so many tests, he will protect them from the ultimate test, and that is the final tribulation. Now here's where I know I'm about to go off track with some of you, and, and I apologize for that. But I am going to go ahead and come down on this today, and, 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 that, and I will be teaching this way going forward. And if it bothers you, I, 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 I have a biblical case that we can make. Some of it we'll make here. This signals that the true church and all who are part of it will be delivered from the final tribulation. I believe the Bible teaches the church is delivered from the final tribulation, and I'm going to go ahead and come down on that and let you know that's what I believe. And I believe that's what the Bible teaches. It's not something I just pulled out of the air. Here's an example of it here. But uh, now this is going to support a pre-tribulation rapture. Okay, and I know some of you, this is just, you can't believe this is being said. Oh, my goodness, whatever. But I'm not just going to say that. I'm going to ask you, we don't have a lot of time. I'm going to ask you to write down these verses, and I want you to read them for yourself. I want you to read John 14, 1 through 4. I want you to read 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 54. And I really want you to read 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17. All of these verses in the New Testament speak of a judgment, but they speak that the church will not receive that judgment prior to the tribulation. How in the world can Paul say, that God's wrath will not be on the church if the church is still here when God's wrath comes. He says it won't be. The church will not see God's wrath. It's the true church. And then we talk about that one of the obvious things, Jesus himself says, this is going to happen, and no one's really going to expect it. He uses twinkle of the eye. He uses a thief in the night. Well, if the church is 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 going to be go through this whole tribulation, that's not a twinkle of the eye. That's not a thief in the middle of the night. That is, oh, my goodness, we're in the tribulation. Now, is it true that there will be people who will be redeemed because they will persevere through the tribulation? That is true. But those are those that the tribulation is what God uses to finally redeem them. But if you're already redeemed, you're not going to face the final tribulation. Uh, scripture is saying that God's wrath will not come on those that are already redeemed. So if you're redeemed and you're saying, but I'm still going to be there for God's wrath, that doesn't, that doesn't really, that doesn't line up with scripture very well. Uh, so, and, and if you, if you believe that the church goes through the tribulation and that's certainly okay, that that's not a redemption issue, but, uh, but, but what Jesus is already saying right here 
is that these people are not going to receive the final tribulation. He's going to protect them from it. And why? Because they're a faithful church. He's saying that. So we, we, we know there's three views that, uh, that, that Scripture supports um, uh, the, the pre-trib, and, uh, and, you can, and you can look at those verses that I just gave you. One of them is the aspects of the promise. Uh, the test that Jesus keeps talking about is in the future. The test is for a, a definite limited time. He says that. The test will expose people for who they are. The test will be worldwide. Uh, and, and, and this is very important. The purpose of the test, meaning the, uh, those who dwell on earth, uh, is, is because this is going to be a significant chance. And every time in Scripture, talk about in the Revelation, when you see this future tribulation, Jesus is always referring to it as something that happens to people who dwell on the earth. Revelation uses this term to signify unbelievers all the time. Write these down. You can go, we'll study them all as we go through. Revelation 6.10, Revelation 8.13, Revelation 11.10, Revelation 13.8, uh, Revelation 12, verse 14, Revelation 14, verse 6, Revelation 17, verses 2 and verse 8. And then, of course, you look at the hour of testing. You know, the book of Daniel always rolls along with, with the Revelation. Uh, the hour of testing is Daniel's uh, 17th week. You find that in Daniel 9, 25 through 27. The time of Jacob's trouble is what Jeremiah calls it in Jeremiah 30, verse 7. The seven-year tribulation period, that's the time of Jacob's trouble, the Lord promises to keep his church out of the future time of testing that will come on unbelievers. And what we're going to find when that happens is you're going to see that that will become a time where this message will come down again that Jeremiah talked about all the way back in Jeremiah 20, the foreshadowing to the tribulation, when the Babylonians are coming and God says, oh, by the way, I, I'm allowing the Babylonians to come. I'll deal with them later, but right now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to punish you with them. And he says, Jeremiah, tell my people, just like he's telling us now for the future tribulation, tell my people this is a message of life or death. Repent or die. And 20, it is come out of the city and submit yourself to the Babylonians, they'll take you into captivity, and I'll deliver you later after you've been refined. You stay in that city, and you'll die with it. Now he's saying, refuse to repent, and the, the tribulation's coming, and I'm, I'll refine you, and I'm going to give you a shot to be lifted from that slavery, but you could avoid that slavery altogether by repenting. But if you don't, the tribulation is coming. And, and, and there'll be another opportunity, and it says that there will be people, especially lots of Jewish people, who will be redeemed during that final tribulation, but the redeemed that are already, that you have already repented, I've already turned from my sin, I've already left my own authority, I've already placed you as my authority, those people, the faithful church, which represent all the truly redeemed, will not face the final tribulation. And Scripture really supports that. But if you don't believe that, that's all right. As long as you still have repented and 
and you are under the authority of Christ, and you said, I'm repenting, I'm under the authority of Christ, if I'm still alive, I'll probably still go through the tribulation, and I won't turn on him. That, if, and, if, and if I look around and we're both in the tribulation, I go, well, you were right. <laughs> but if you're standing there and I start meeting him on the clouds, I'm going to say, I told you! <laughs> you won't be complaining, though, when you're flying with me. Well, you won't, you won't be bothered by it. So, so anyway, John also uh, covers this in John seventeen fifteen in the priestly prayer. And he's saying this to the church at Philadelphia. He says, I will protect you and I will keep you from evil. I love that. So then as he wraps it up, and we'll wrap up right here, he wraps it up. And 11 through 13, when he, when, uh, when he says this, I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. Never shall uh, he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know what he says? Remain faithful. Prove the genuineness of your salvation. Those who abandon their faith really never were of the faith. First John tells us that in 2.19. So when you see people fade away and you say, well, I thought they believed, John says, no, they never did. Those who are truly redeemed, they don't fade away. No one can take your crown. That's from James 1.2. James talks about that. Revelation 2.10. This, of course, is the crown of life. Those who endure to the end will receive the crown of life. And he says, you keep living the way you're living, and nobody will get your crown. You will receive from me the crown of life. Also, we know the crown of righteousness for those that may be martyred uh, will also receive that. 1 Peter 5.4 says also that, um, that they will be glorified, and they are made perfectly righteous, perfectly reflecting God's glory. The faithful who persevere are marked as the true children of God. That's what he means. I'll put my name on you. And then he says there's four blessings for the overcomer. Number one, you'll be a pillar. that You'll have an eternal place of honor in the temple. A pillar stands for stability, permanence, and you're immovable. Are you immovable for, your, for Jesus? Immovable in your faith? I'll write on you the name of my God. You will belong to me. You will know me personally forever. We will dwell in the new Jerusalem. That's the eternal citizenship in the new Jerusalem and the new heaven that we'll study when we get to Revelation chapter 21. And I give you a new name, a name that only I know. And you know what that is? When Paul talks about right now, I can only see you partially. But Jesus said to the faithful, a day is coming when you'll know me fully. And I'll give you a name that only you and I know. And you will be mine. Once we knew partially, we will soon know fully. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All seven letters will end with that. We must hear the truth of each letter. Philadelphia represents what it looks like and what is promised to the church who remains loyal. They will be blessed. They will be fruitful. They will be protected. They will, from the final tribulation, they have Christ fully revealed to them, and we should all desire to follow their example of faithfulness. Let's pray.
Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for an example of what you're looking for. Lord, I I found myself looking forward to meeting the people of Philadelphia when we all come together. What an impressive bunch. But you know what they would say? The only thing good about them is you. They were just simply faithful to you. May we follow their example. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Thanks for being with us.